So let's go ahead and turn over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, we do enter into your Holy of Holies right now as your people, and we pray that you would speak to us. We pray, Lord, as we prepare again to remember the awesome event in history where you entered and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to save his people, that, Lord, we would have fresh meditations for worship this year. Help us to truly meditate upon the truths of your word, that it would impact us, and that we could give you fresh worship. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's focus in on what Paul tells us there in verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Verse 15 is like a mini-Bible. It's like John 3.16, where they, if you were to distill and summarize the message of the entire Bible into one verse and squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze it, until you have almost nothing left, you get verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel distilled into its purest essence. <laughs> Let's think about that. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. What statement is he talking about that's so trustworthy? Well, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a trustworthy statement. This statement is worthy of your trust. Now, why is that statement so trustworthy? Why is it so worthy of our belief and our trust and our faith? Well, number one, because it is the statement of God who cannot lie. And that should settle it forever anyway. But number two, because we have dozens of prophecies given hundreds of years before that corroborate and attest to the fact that this statement is true. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, Jesus fulfilled some prophecies, but I think he was just trying to kind of pull it off. He was trying to actually fulfill those prophecies so it would make it look like he was the one that these ancient prophecies talked about. But let me ask you something. How do you, how do you make a prophecy come true that says that you're going to be born in Bethlehem? How do you make a prophecy come true that says you're going to be born of a virgin? 
I mean, these are absolutely impossible for someone to engineer and make it look as though he was the real one that came to establish the prophecies. So it's a trustworthy statement. The gospel's trustworthy. But not only that, the scripture says it's deserving full acceptance. What that means is that everyone in the world should accept this statement. It deserves to be fully accepted by all people everywhere. Now why? Because everybody needs this statement. This statement is suitable for the needs of all people throughout the world everywhere. Christ Jesus came in to the world to save sinners. And that makes it applicable and suitable for every person that we had ever talked to throughout the world. It deserves full acceptance of everyone because it is such an awesome good news statement. This statement deserves to be accepted without reservation, without doubt, and without hesitation. We can bank our souls on the statement of verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, there are three things I want you to really think about. The person, the place, and the purpose. The person, Christ Jesus. The place, He came into the world. The purpose, to save sinners. Let's meditate on those. First of all, the person. We're told in verse 15. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus... Let's just stop there. Christ Jesus. Let's meditate on those words. First of all, the word Christ. Does anybody understand what that word actually means, literally? Yes, it's a synonym for Messiah. It means the anointed one. It means one sent on a mission who has been anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about the mission. So Christ is the one that God the Father sent on a mission endued with the power of the Spirit to accomplish that mission. That's what it means that He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. Now, is it true that Jesus Christ was sent on a mission? Absolutely. Right? You find, if you read through the Gospel of John, you're going to find Jesus saying that He was sent by His Father 40 times. There's only 21 chapters. <laughs> so over and over and over, Jesus repeats this. The Father sent me. I've been sent into the world. I'll give you just a couple of examples. For example, at John 3.17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Or John 4.34. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Or John 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So yes, Jesus was sent on a mission. Yeah. I was just um, thinking when he kept saying sent, 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 but when he's coming back, he, he never said that he's going to send me back. He said, I'm coming back. Right? True. So mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So, so he was sent, but was it also true of Jesus that he was endued with the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission? Do we have that told us anywhere in Scripture? We sure do. John 4.34. No, 3.34, excuse me. 3.34. Jesus says this. 
For he whom God has sent, that's him, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. I believe what Jesus is saying there is that the reason Jesus could speak the very words of God was because God the Father had sent him, and he had given to him the Holy Spirit without measure. An immeasurable supply of the Holy Spirit funneling through Jesus Christ. So he's speaking the very words of God out to the people. He's endued with the power of the Spirit. Or what about that other very well-known passage in Luke 4, verse 18, where Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So the Spirit of God was upon Jesus. That's why he could heal, cast out demons, preach so powerfully, bring the word of God to the people, set people free who were downtrodden and oppressed. The Holy Spirit was empowering him to do that. So Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Messiah, the one that had been promised for centuries to the Jewish people, the one who had come to redeem Israel. And these prophecies and these promises about this coming one were made over and over and over. Jesus is the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. He's the seed of Abraham who would bless all the nations of the world. He's the star out of Jacob, the Passover lamb, the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole the chief cornerstone, the virgin's son, the prophet like unto Moses, the priest like Melchizedek, the shepherd like David, the king like Solomon, the creator of Genesis, the lawgiver of Exodus, all the sacrifices of Leviticus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the branch of Jeremiah and the prince of Daniel. And it's probably a lot of them I forgot. But that's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied and he came into the world to fulfill what God had said and to bring redemption to Israel. Well, he's also called Christ Jesus. Jesus was his actual name. Christ is a title. Jesus was his given name. The name means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. And when the... uh, Angel Gabriel came to Joseph. He tells him something very interesting. This is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He says, She, the virgin, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for... Why are they going to call his name Jesus? For, or because, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Call him Jehovah is salvation for this baby when he grows up will save his people from their sins. I don't know if you're making the connection, but the angel is telling Joseph that this baby that to be born is going to be Jehovah who would save his people. That's why he is to be called Jesus. Jehovah saves. Jehovah is salvation. And we know that's what the angel meant because of the following two verses. In verse 22, it says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And now he's going to quote Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin will be with child 
and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name, not Jesus, but Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us. Now, this is mind-blowing. To me, it is. I mean, think of who God is. Think of the immensity of the universe and that God made that with a word. He spoke it. That's God. He came to visit this planet in the person of Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel. God is with us. He's among us. He's living here amongst His creatures. Jehovah has come to save His people from their sins. So God visited this wretched planet and He poured out His own lifeblood for the redemption of sinners. And that's why Charles Wesley, when he wrote the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels, he said, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You know what incarnate means? You've had chili con carne before? It means chili with meat. Chili with flesh. Incarnate means God has become enfleshed. Jehovah has come and assumed a human nature, dwelling in a human body, to visit us. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. John put it this way, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the Word became flesh. If the Word is God, and He became flesh, we could substitute that and say, God became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the amazing, awesome truth that we celebrate at Christmas time. God became flesh. So that's the person. Christ Jesus. Now, let's go to the place. He came into the world. He came into the world. Focus on that word came. He came. What does that tell you? It tells you he was someplace before he arrived here. If I come someplace, that means that I was already here and then I went there. Right? Where was he before he showed up on planet Earth? He was in heaven. He pre-existed. I've talked to people before and they're confused. They think that Jesus actually began to exist when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. But that's not true. The Bible everywhere tells us that he has always existed. Of course he has to if he's Jehovah God, the creator, the one who had no beginning, right? Well, that's what we find when we go to the book of John. And again, chapter 1, but in verse 3. It says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So how could he have started to exist in the womb of Mary if everything before him had already come into being through him? (laughs) It it, it implies he had to pre-exist. And also, if you go over to verse 15, it says, John, John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now tell me, who was born first, John the Baptist or Jesus? John the Baptist, by six months. So John the Baptist said, the one that was born six months after I was, existed before me. 
Do you see what he's saying? There is an eternal pre-existence of Jesus Christ. That's right. So, the word came tells us that the second person of the Godhead, the Logos, came from heaven to earth on a mission and dude with the power of the Spirit to save. Now, let's focus on the words into the world. He came into the world. First thing that tells us is that this one who is going to come is going to condescend and humble himself. He's coming into this world, a fallen, sin-ravaged world. And in order for the God, the Creator God, to assume human flesh is going to require that He humble Himself greatly, lower Himself to assume a human nature. He had to divest Himself of the independent exercises of His divine attributes for 33 years. We're not saying that he wasn't God. He always was. But he gave up the right to independently exercise those attributes at will. And he depended upon his Father to exercise those attributes. He also gave up the divine glory and the heavenly worship that he had enjoyed and been the center of for time immemorial. And so what we find here is that the infinite Jehovah is spending nine months as a developing embryo. Try to wrap your head around that idea. This tiny, tiny little new life in the womb of a woman is God. And it's, he grows and he, the womb expands and the baby gets bigger. And he grows and he's finally born. And then he grows in favor with God and man. He grows physically as well as emotionally and intellectually. He was born in a stable, laid in a manger... He was raised in obscurity as a carpenter's son. And one author put it this way, He was born like other men, but he was not born in the way of ordinary generation. He was formed by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, that he might partake of our nature without inheriting our corruption. I thought that was very good. He was born of a virgin that he might partake of our nature so that he could die for sinners. He had to be a human being to die for other human beings. But he does not inherit our corruption. The Father passes on the pure life, his own pure life, without any corruption. The corruption not coming into this individual. Now, to whom did he come? It says he came into the world. Well, who was the world made up of? His own creatures who had ruined themselves, who had transgressed his law, who had despised his authority, who had cast off his yoke, who had defaced his image, those who were darkened in understanding, rebellious in will, lustful in affection, and all of that resulted in their misery, misery in life and misery in death, misery in life, diseases, crimes, wars, but also misery and death. Because when these miserable creatures die, they have to stand before their Creator and be exposed to a flood of divine wrath and vengeance for their sin. They must now stand before the judgment seat of an incensed, almighty, ever-living God who is their enemy. Misery in life, 
misery and death. That's the world that Jesus came into. A world of fallen, ruined, defaced creatures. Now think about this. Jesus knew he was going to be despised and forsaken of men. But he came anyway. Jesus came to those who showed utter contempt and hatred for him. Yet he came anyway. Jesus knew that these creatures would murder him. Yet he came anyway. Jesus knew they would condemn him unjustly, mock him, insult him, spit upon him, beat him, pierce him with nails and a spear. Yet he came anyway. He came into the world. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's the place. Let's look at the purpose. What's Christmas all about? Why did Jesus come? To save sinners. To save sinners. It's interesting that this verse doesn't say that he came to teach. It doesn't say that he came to set an example. It doesn't say that he came to heal or that he came to cast out demons. He did all of those things, didn't he? But they weren't the ultimate reason why he came. The reason why he came was to save sinners. And if we start substituting other things for this, we've got everything backwards and upside down. And we've missed the priority of God in sending his son. It was to save sinners. Let's let's look at some of the statements that Jesus made himself about why he came into the world. First one I want to show you is Matthew 20, verse 28. Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There's a statement from the lips of the Son of God about why he came. Why did the Father send him? Here it is. To serve. How is he going to serve? By giving his life a ransom for many. Okay, let's look at another one. Luke 5.32. Luke 5.32, Jesus says here, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he came, to call sinners to repentance, to give his life a ransom for many. Let's look at another one. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came, to seek out and to save those who are lost. How about John 3.17? I've already read this one, but we'll read it again. John 3.17 says, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Salvation. Or John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Everlasting life. The life of God. Abundant life. So Jesus was on a mission of mercy. A mission of salvation. He was sent by the Father. And when he came, he was going to do lots of other things. He's going to teach. He's going to set an example. He's going to heal. He's going to cast out demons. But his main purpose was to save sinners. 
That's why he came. And that's the message of Christmas. God has invaded this planet on a mission of mercy from his Father to save sinners. He came to save us from the punishment of sin, the pollution of sin, and the presence of sin. He came to restore us to God's favor. He came to reconcile us to our Father. Now the word saved simply means rescued. That's an easy word to understand. To be rescued. Imagine children dropped, trapped in the third story of a burning house. And there's no way for them to escape. The building's in flames. If they are going to be rescued, it's going to have to happen because someone outside of that burning house goes to them and reaches in and takes them out. That's what it means to be saved. God came from outside in to rescue us or else we would have perished. Now, this verse says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Not to try to save. Not to make us savable. Not to help us save ourselves with His effort. He came to save. To bring a certain salvation. He came to save. He didn't set us on our feet so that we could help God out by saving ourselves with this work or that work or that thing over there. No, He came to save. The, the angel's message was, you shall call His name Jesus for He shall save His people from their sins. Jesus is the one who does the saving. We're the ones that do the sinning. That's how it works. <laughs> our contribution is our sin. His contribution is salvation. That's why the hymn writer says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Uh, He washed it, white as snow. And I don't know if, if you've ever thought about this, but even our response to his amazing love and his amazing grace is of his own grace. Our response when we are humbled our response when we repent, our response when we cast ourselves on His mercy, those actions of our response, the Bible calls them gifts of God's grace. The faith is a gift of the grace of God. Repentance is a gift of the grace of God. So salvation from beginning to end comes sovereignly and magnificently and generously and graciously from God. All of it. Not 50%, not 99%, but the whole ball of wax. Now this statement says... He came to save sinners. Sinners. It doesn't say he came to save good people. Does it say he came to save those who had fulfilled his law? No. Because there weren't any good people and there weren't any people who had perfectly kept his law. Imagine if you had never heard this passage read in your life before and you're sitting in church and the preacher's reading it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save and he waits. And you are listening with rapt attention. You're thrusting your head forward. You're cupping your hands to your ears. You're fearful that maybe it's going to say something that would eliminate you. Maybe you don't qualify. Maybe you can't be saved. And then when he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners there's a huge sigh of relief. It's everyone. I qualify for that one. 
I'm good to go if it's a sinner that he came to save. <laughs> it doesn't say he came into the world to save the wealthy, because if it did, maybe I wouldn't make it. Or the learned, or the educated, or the beautiful, or the famous, or the Jews. It says he came into the world to save sinners. Now, how many of you qualify? Amen. Amen. Thank God that he threw open his arms that wide to include all that needed his great salvation. Hallelujah. Now, my question for you is, are you a sinner? The, the, the problem is, there are many people who would say, no, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. In fact, most of the people I try to witness to say that. No, I'm a good person. And I have to turn around and say, well, then I'm sorry, Christ Jesus didn't come into the world to save you. Because he came into the world to save sinners. And if you're not a sinner, there's no salvation for you. You have to come to the end of yourself where you see yourself as a sinner. And really feel yourself to be a sinner. And own that for yourself. Because if that doesn't happen, you'll never be saved. His salvation is powerful enough to save you. But unless you can see yourself to be a sinner, you won't reach out to him in faith to receive the salvation. But if you know yourself a sinner, Christ Jesus came for you. Now, he goes on to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and there's a little tag on at the end, of whom I am foremost of all. I find that an amazing statement, because remember who's penning these words. This is the Apostle Paul. And this is at the end of his life. He's been a Christian for about 30 years now. He has been serving the Lord with tremendous zeal and abandon and sacrifice. He's given up everything in this world to preach the gospel, to plant churches all over the known world. And he says he is the foremost sinner of all. Now, was he just exaggerating, do you think? Yeah, to him, he really felt that. He meant it. I believe that's true. And what I find really interesting is that he made similar statements during his ministry. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, I am the least of the apostles. Now, he said that in about 57 A.D. Five years later, when he wrote Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints. So he's gone from the least of the apostles in 57 A.D. to the least of the saints in 62 A.D. And then we find him saying, I am the foremost of all sinners in 64 or 65 A.D. The longer he knew the Lord, the lower he went in his own estimation. First, he's just the least of the apostles, but at least he's an apostle. Then he's the least of the saints, but at least he's a saint. And now he's the worst sinner in the world in his own mind. Do you see? (laughs) He's going down, not up. The longer he knew the Lord, the more humble and the more unworthy he's felt himself to be in the sight of God. And you say, how can that be? Wasn't he becoming more holy? How could he think he was becoming more of a sinner? Well, the illustration that comes to me is, when I'm in a sort of a dark room and the drapes are closed, the air looks clean and pure. But as soon as you open up the drapes and the sun floods in and that light comes in, you see all this dust everywhere. 
And God is light. When the light of God shines into your soul, when you get closer to God and more of that light is coming in, more and more of your own weaknesses and sin and unworthiness appears to you. And you see yourself. You see the ugly, hidden motives of the heart that you didn't see before. And you feel yourself to be more unworthy in the sight of God. Not more worthy. Notice he didn't say, I was the foremost of all. He says, I am. Present tense, right now, in my own estimation, after walking with Jesus for 30 years, this is who I really believe myself to be, the foremost of all sinners. Let me just conclude with a few thoughts. First of all, to those people here who may not know Christ for themselves. Maybe you've not been born again yet. Let me have a a few thoughts for you. You can have Christmas glad tidings. I I call my message Christmas glad tidings. You can have those glad tidings. They can be for you today. But they're only going to be glad tidings if you know yourself to be a sinner. Spirit of God, can you just speak to some hearts today? Open up their heart to see their vileness, their desperate need for Christ. Because that's the only way this is going to happen. If you're not a sinner, God has nothing to offer you. If you know you're a sinner, you're just the kind of person Jesus came to save. So acknowledge your sin to God. Humble yourself before Him. Realize you cannot save yourself, not even with Jesus' help. Jesus will have to save you if you are to be saved. He has to do all the saving and He will get all the glory for all the saving. We don't help Him out. He's the one that does this great work. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. I love what John Newton once said at the very end of his life. John Newton wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace, that everyone knows today. Well, he was also a pastor. And at the very end of his life, he was suffering dementia. He was losing his memory. And he says, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And I thought, if you just remember those two things, you're okay. You're going to be okay. Now, if you're a Christian, if you know Christ, what does 1 Timothy 1.15 have for you? Well, I want to apply it this way. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. And he says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, think on that. As the Father sent me, so also I send you. Well, the Father, we know, sent Jesus on a mission of salvation to seek and to save lost people, to save sinners. And Jesus says, I've accomplished my mission, but now I'm giving you a mission. Just as the Father sent me, now I am commissioning and sending you. You are to go out on a mission of mercy and a mission of salvation. And what he's saying there is that we have been given the job the great commission of making disciples of all the nations. Just as Jesus came to save, He sent us out to bear the news of salvation, to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins.
John Wesley once put it this way, You have nothing to do but to save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. It is not your business to preach so many times and to take care of this or that society, but to save as many souls as you can, to bring as many sinners as you possibly can to repentance. Good advice. Imagine if you were sitting by the side of a lake and you glance over and you see another family there having a great time. They're having a party. They're having a picnic. Everyone's enjoying themselves. They're laughing. But a little girl down the way belonging to another family falls into the the pond and she's only two years old. She can't swim and she starts screaming and floundering around. But the people over here are so busy enjoying themselves with their party that they can't be inconvenienced to do anything about this little drowning girl. What would you think about that? It's criminal. Right? It's criminal. Are we committing crimes, sitting by, enjoying ourselves, and doing nothing while people around us perish? That's the question to ask yourself. Or what would you think of the doctor who won't take time to give out medicine because he feels like he just needs more time to study his, his trade. So he goes into his office, closes the door, and studies while people around him are perishing. And he has the medicine that can save their lives, but he does nothing for them. Or what would you think of the person who sees a house on fire, knows that children are inside it, but he reasons, hey, they're not my children, so I have no responsibility here. We can make all the same excuses for doing nothing. And God wants us to be actively involved. As as the Father sent Jesus, He sent you. And don't use the excuse, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a leader, I'm just a nobody Christian. That's the kind of people He uses. That's the kind of people that He has given this commission to. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And He says, therefore I want you to go and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's one application. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but then he commissions you and me. So who is in your life? Who is in your life that you could bear this message to? Someone that you know, a neighbor, a family member that you're going to see around Christmas time, a friend, someone that you work with. We need to be serious about this church family. I mean, this is something that is deadly serious. And then I would leave you just with this note. If Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and if you have received Him, you are saved. And there is joy, there's Christmas joy for you. There is Christmas glad tidings that we can enter into because God has washed away our sin. He's rescued us from the punishment, the pollution, and one day even the presence of sin as we're with Him in heaven. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Christmas glad tidings. Thank You for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord... If there are people here today that have never committed their life to Jesus Christ, that you would speak to their heart and show them their sin and 
Enable them, Lord, to humble themselves before you and to cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Lord, those of us whom have come to know you, fill us with joy overflowing that we would be excited, Lord, to share these glad tidings with anybody within earshot. Make us zealous, Lord, for your, the Father's house, just as you were, Lord Jesus. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.